Good morning, afternoon, or evening from wherever you might be joining us, and welcome to today's Oxford Executive MBA faculty discussion. My name is Alejandra de Rojas, and I'm a recruitment manager for the Executive MBA program. It's my honor to have one of our world-class faculty members, Renee Adams, with us for our session today, who will be discussing whether policy movement around women on boards worked. Next slide, please. Before we begin, I wanted to use this as an opportunity to give you a brief overview of our Executive MBA and some of the key aspects of the program. At Said, we have two intakes per academic year, one that starts in January and the other one in September, with each intake typically consisting of around 70 students. In terms of the format, students are required to study for a duration of one week at a time, usually Monday to Friday with occasional weekend classes. It is a part-time program and it consists of 15 to 17 week-long modules, depending on the choice of your four electives. These run approximately every five to six weeks to fit alongside your work commitments, and it takes around two years to complete the full program. All students complete 13 core courses, and you can then have a choice to select four electives that will give you the opportunity to tailor your master's to suit your motivations and areas of interest. We also offer international modules, which take place in Asia, Africa, in North and South Africa, America. If you want to find out more, please reach out to me or my colleagues, and we will be more than happy to further assess you. My colleagues will shortly share our contact details in the chat box. And now let's move on to our main section of this session and introduce Renee Adams to you. Next slide, please. Renée is a professor of finance at Said Business School. Her work is interdisciplinary and lies at the intersection between economics, finance, management, and psychology. She's interested in group decision-making and how group identity, typically gender, culture, and values moderate decision-making. She's currently working on the status of women in art and academia and exploring comic-making as a tool for conveying scientific ideas that challenge people's beliefs. Her interest in gender is not limited to research. In 2015, she co-founded AFFECT, the American Finance Association Women's Committee, and chaired it until 2020. In 2022, she created and taught the first ever MBA and EMBA classes on diversity and inclusion at Business School. Please use the chat function if you have any questions for Renee or the recruitment team. On that note, I will hand it over to Renee. Thanks everyone for uh, attending this sample lecture. I'm very delighted to be uh, talking about this particular topic, especially because um, today there was a lot of news around uh, the release of the FTSE Women Leaders Report. Uh, so I'll be touching on this um, a bit later. So the timing is actually uh, quite perfect. Um, Okay, so um, as Alejandra mentioned, uh, I taught, I designed and um, taught the first version of this course last year. So this is the first time that diversity and inclusion has been taught in a systematic way at uh, Said Business School. And um, I'll talk a little bit about what the class is about so you get a sense, and then um, I'll give sort of a, an excerpt of one of my lectures. Okay, so what is the goal of the class? The 
the goal of the class is for students to become educated and critical consumers of diversity research and policy. So what does that mean? That means that um, the students, hopefully by the end of the class, will be able to look at research in the diversity space and say, does the evidence actually live up to the claims that the authors are making? Um, similarly, you know, if you look at a, a diversity policy, whether it's at a country level or at a company level, um, does the policy actually achieve the goals that it claims to achieve? And building on this sort of learning experience, my hope is that after taking the class, students will become educated and critical producers of diversity initiatives. So if you are in a company and you say, well, we need to um, work on um, inclusion, which many companies are obviously now tackling these issues of inclusion, um, what might be the best way to go about designing a strategy or a policy in order to achieve the goals that we set for ourselves in this space. Now, so those are the goals of the class. Now, the question is, how do we actually try to achieve those goals? Um, so what we do is we pay careful attention to statistical evidence and the interpretation of the evidence. Uh, and we also confront policy claims with testable hypotheses. So I'll give an example of that in the lecture today. And um, please do uh, ask questions as we go along, um, if you like. Okay, so uh, just to give a, a brief overview of the types of topics that we touch on. Um, so the, the course is called Diversity, Inclusion, and Finance, which may be a bit unusual. So it's you may wonder, well, what, what is the finance aspect of this course? Uh, finance actually plays a really important role in this space, um, maybe perhaps surprisingly. Uh, one reason is that um, many of the arguments for diversity rely on shareholder value arguments, right? So, so people will say, well, we really need more diversity because if we have more diversity, then shareholder value will go up. So company performance will go up. So this is a finance argument. Um, and so in order to understand um, this type of argument, the research in this space, understanding finance is important. Um, another important finance angle is uh, the, the question of um, what is the role of market efficiency? So one question that we start out with in the class is um, the question whether discrimination can exist in efficient markets. I won't give you the answer here, so if you're interested, you have to take the class. Um, another topic that we look at is um, causal inference. So this is really important uh, in the diversity space. There's lots of correlations. Um, now the question is, you know, what, what are the actual causal relationships? Um, it's not always so clear. So uh, in particular, this is a big issue in the business case argument, right? Which is the argument that more diversity leads to higher shareholder value. That's the business case argument. Uh, so the question is, um, is that a causal? relationship? Is it not a causal relationship? And more generally, does it even matter? So that's one of the topics that we discuss. Um, we also look at the board policy movement. So we'll talk a bit about that today. Uh, has it actually achieved its goals? Many people argue that it has achieved its goals. Um, so we're going to, we take a look at whether it actually has achieved its goals. Um, and then one of my favorite topics is we use uh, the Google diversity memo. I'm not sure if many of you remember this, but um, an engineer at Google uh, a couple of years back caused a huge scandal when he argued that um, Google was actually spending too much time worrying about diversity 
and um, that really they need to stop uh, designing policies for inclusion. Um, so this memo is actually very useful. Um, many companies potentially, or many people feel that there's, you know, we've sort of gone overboard. Um, and so we take a critical look at whether that's actually true and also discuss the nature versus nurture debate. Uh, now, I should say that um, in the class, we spend a lot of time talking about gender because most of the data is available for gender. Uh, it's very hard to get data on um, other sort of underrepresented groups. Uh, but the lessons that we learn in the class extend beyond gender. So the lessons are not specific to gender. Um, you know, you can learn about causality regardless of the setting. Right. You can learn about whether policies work regardless of the setting. Um, so those lessons are general lessons, even though we often look at them in the context of gender. OK, so now I'm going to give you an excerpt from one of my lectures. And in particular, we're going to be looking at the uh, policy movement around women on boards. Okay, so what is this policy movement? There's been a sort of wave of countries passing um, policies at the country level. So they, they're supposed to apply to um, mostly listed firms within an entire country uh, that specifically target women's representation on corporate boards. So this graph that I have right here shows the number and percentage of countries enacting these policies. The blue line here is the number of policies, so the number of countries enacting policies, and the dashed red line is the percent of countries enacting policies. Now you see that um, the graph ends in 2015. I'm trying to gather the data to um, update uh, this graph, but uh, there have obviously been many more policies enacted since 2015. Uh, so last year, for example, in the Netherlands, a gender quota was passed. Um, France has been implementing gender quotas and revising their gender quotas. Uh, so there's been much more action um, that's represented uh, on this slide. Uh, but so what do you see from uh, the graph? You see that, uh, first of all, this is a very active space. So there's a lot of activity going on in recent years. So policymakers love gender policies. Uh, and as a result, you see that the percent of countries that have a board level gender policy has, um, so here it looks like less than 25%, but now I would say it's definitely over 25%. So a quarter of countries worldwide have some sort of country level policy that targets women's representation on corporate boards. So I would say that's quite a lot. Uh, now, what kind of policies are these? Uh, so the, the policies that are represented in the graph consist of legal quotas for listed or state-owned firms. They consist of governance code amendments, and I'll give you an example a bit later. And in particular, what that is, is if a country has a governance code that listed firms are supposed to abide by, then um, the governance code will say, well, when appointing directors, it's very important that you um, consider gender. And um, countries may also have disclosure requirements. So listed firms um, might be subject to particular disclosure around gender diversity on boards. 
Um, sorry, I'm just taking a look at the at the question. Okay, yeah, thanks, Mohammed. So Mohammed said it's totally okay to look at gender, um, and I agree. There's, there's a lot uh, actually of uh, work to um, uh, to do uh, in the gender space. So as we'll talk about today. Uh, okay, so now these are the policies that are represented on the graph. And like I said before, uh, there's been more policies uh, enacted since 2015. So very active uh, policy space. Now, um, I'm going to walk you through a particular example of a policy. So this is the, the UK governance code. And um, then we'll look take a bit of a closer look at whether it actually has achieved some of the goals um, that it hopes to achieve. So in 2010, the UK governance code was amended to address diversity. Uh, in particular, section B, which relates to appointments to the board was amended. So there's a main principle in the governance code that says that there should be a formal and transparent procedure for the appointment of new directors to the board. Uh, but then there's also a supporting principle that says that um, uh, due regard should be given to the benefits of diversity on the board, including gender. So gender is specifically uh, uh, um, highlighted. Now, along so sort of subsequent to the to the amendment of the code, Lord Davies was commissioned to develop a business strategy to increase the representation of women on the boards of listed firms. And this led to a series of reviews um, that were published called the Davies Reviews um, on the status of women, uh, women's representation on corporate boards in the UK. Uh, the Davies Reviews were then followed by the Hampton and Alexander reports. And um, in 2020, the FTSE Women Leaders Reviews took over the series of reports. And so the one of the reports was uh, for 2023 was uh, just launched today. Okay, now, of course, a very important question is, well, why do, why do they have, why are the policymakers so interested in, um, in having women's representation on boards, right? So I'll, I'll discuss the sort of general space a little bit later, but if we look at some of these reviews for the UK, uh, we can get a sense of what the, what the arguments are. Uh, so the Davies Review, um, here I have a, a quote from the Davies Review, it says, of course, a key factor driving boards is profitability and return to shareholders. A range of research illustrates the positive impact that women's contribution to the boardroom can make to the bottom line of the company's finances and positively associates gender diverse boards with improved performance. Okay, so the argument here is um, the business case argument that, uh, well, if we have more women on boards, then performance will increase. Uh, the Hampton Alexander report has a similar argument. For example, here um, I have an excerpt that says most executives know how strong the empirical evidence is that proves the link between fostering more diverse mindsets and achieving superior financial performance. I see there's some. Oh no. Okay. All right. Never mind. I was just checking the chat. Okay. The FTSE Women Leaders uh, uh, has doesn't make such a strong argument for the business case, but uh, there's here I have an excerpt where they say uh, a diverse and inclusive culture expands the pool of innovative ideas, which creates new avenues of commercialization and inclusive growth, right? So the argument 
here is also, in some sense, a business case argument. Um, but the mechanism is spelled out in terms of diversity of ideas and potential innovation. Okay, so um, if we look at the overall policy movement, um, this is so the UK case is one example of a governance code that specifically targets women on boards. Um, but different approaches have been taken in different countries. Uh, so there have been quotas, codes, targets, disclosure rules. Um, there's also different targeted subsets of the corporate landscape. So in some countries, um, the policy applies to listed firms. In some countries, it applies to state-owned firms. Um, and banks have also been singled out as um, specific targets uh, that need to abide by specific uh, gender policies. OK, so even though the approaches are sometimes different, the outcomes, I would say, are generally quite similar, or the expected outcomes are generally quite similar. Um, so if you if you go through the policies, you see there's really two main arguments uh, why this people view this gender imbalance on boards to be a problem. So the first one is the justice argument. And this is a very simple argument. Basically, policymakers say, well, look, um, women represent 50% of the population, and yet we see there's very few women on boards. And um, this just does not seem right. Okay, so that's a pure justice argument. The second is the utility argument. So policymakers will say, well, um, we really need more women on boards because this is good for shareholders, this is good for the economy, this is good for, you know. So this is a utility a performance argument. And this was um, quite clearly reflected in the Davies Review and the Hampton Alexander reports. Okay, so, um, so the expected outcomes, so basically these are the rationales for having these policies and then the expected outcomes of the policies are first of all more participation by women in decision making so policymakers will say well we need this policy because we need more women to participate in decision making and this can either be direct participation so for example you know the woman sits on the board so she's more involved in decision making but it can also be indirect so people often argue that well if you have more women on boards then other women will see these women as role models and they'll be more likely to join the workforce, that will be more likely to pursue careers um, that are high powered, et cetera, et cetera. So there's both direct and indirect uh, effects. Um, another expected outcome, which builds follows directly from the utility rationale for implementing a board gender policy is the better company performance, right? So, um, if you argue that we're implementing this uh, this policy because we think it will lead to better company performance, then obviously the expected outcome of the policy should be better company performance. A similar argument can be made for reductions in corporate risk. So um, some policymakers say, well, if we have more diversity, more women on boards, then um, risk should go down. And so the expected outcome of the policy is obviously reductions in corporate risk. Um, policymakers say, well, if we have more women on boards, then the economy may perform better. And so an expected outcome is better macro performance. Um, and if we build on the FTSE women leaders argument, you know, if you say, well, we want uh, more women on boards because then we have more ideas and it generates um, more sort of innovation, well, then obviously an expected outcome is more innovation. Okay, so 
what I do in in the class is we say, well, let's take these policy claims seriously, right? So, um, so we think we have a problem, right? We see that there's very few women on boards, um, and so you know the question is, well, what what is the problem? If we we if we actually want to change the situation, we have to say, well, what is the problem? How can one address it? And then, of course, you have to say, well, I've designed this policy, but did I actually address the problem I was trying to solve? And if you really want to change things, that's a question you have to ask, because if you haven't addressed it, then you have to start over, right? You have to refine the policy. So policy evaluation is actually a really important component of enacting change. You can't just have a policy, but not evaluate it. Okay, so we're going to do a little bit of policy evaluation. So we're going to think a little bit carefully about what is the problem the policy is trying to solve and how can we test whether the policy achieved its goals. Now, it's actually a bit tricky or it's a lot more difficult to do this than it may seem because often the problem is not really spelled out in the policy. So, for example, if the policy says, um, if if people say, well, we really want to have this uh, board gender quota or this um, change in the requirements for listed firms, uh, we we want to we want them to consider gender as an important factor, um, and they say why? Because we want more participation by women in decision making. Um, then, what is the problem that they're actually trying to solve? Well, it's the problem that women are not represented. But then why are they not represented? And so if they say, well, we need more women who are role models, then what they're sort of implicitly saying is that women do not participate or women are reluctant to engage in the workforce without role models, right? So the problem that you're actually sort of implicitly highlighting, but not explicitly stating is for some reason women are reluctant to participate in the workforce. And so what we need is role models in order to encourage them to participate. Similarly, if you say, if you make the utility argument, if you say, well, um, we need more women on boards because that will increase shareholder value, what you're implicitly saying is that shareholder, shareholder value is too low. So the problem that we have right now is shareholder value, you know, is too low. We're leaving money on the table. That's why we need more women on boards. Okay, so now how would you test whether the policy actually leads to an increase in shareholder value or actually addresses the problem that um, women are reluctant to engage in labor markets? Um, so these are actually, these are not easy um, tests to do, right? Because the, the underlying problem is actually quite complicated and you need lots of data. But for the purpose of this lecture, what we can do is we can do a very basic policy evaluation. We can say, well, does the board gender policy actually fulfill the stated goal of increasing women's representation? Okay, so how could one test that, right? So the goal of the policy is we wanna increase women's representation. Now we can say, well, we can test whether the policy increases women's representation. Um, and so we can get some data and say, well, let's see if the policy seems to have led to a change. And so I'm going to uh, look at whether the average fraction of women on boards increases following the implementation of a board diversity policy. 
Um, and I'm going to be looking at the UK example. So we're going to see, does the policy actually work? Or does it look like the policy worked? Okay, this is not going to be a super statistical uh, analysis, so I'm just going to eyeball uh, the graph. But um, So Joseph asked a question, how do you feel about quotas as a method of affecting the gender ratio? Should policymakers not, not strive to equalize the opportunity rather than outcome? Um, yeah, so, well, this is a good question, Joseph. So what I think is really important to understand is um, what does a policy say it wants to do, right? Does a policy say it wants to equalize outcome? That's different from whether the policy says that, for example, they want to um, increase shareholder value, right? So, so basically what we discuss in class is um, let's evaluate the policy on the basis of the claims that it makes and see whether it can actually achieve what it says. And then if you if you say that, well, maybe the policy doesn't achieve the claims that it makes, then you have to ask yourself is, well, is that the right claim to make, right? So why is the policy framed in this way? And is there a better way of framing the policy to achieve the goals to solve the underlying problems that you want to solve? Um, Okay, Mustafa asks, what do you think is the most important barrier to get over in the world to ensure gender diversity policies reach its goal? Um, well, that's a really big question. But um, one thing that I really think is important is education, right? So um, I think this is a space where very few people are willing to have uh, sort of um, serious debates. There's a lot of ideology in this space. And I think if you don't actually have serious and critical conversations, um, then it's very difficult to make progress. Okay, so um, now we're gonna look at the at the UK uh, situation, right? So uh, here I have some data from the 50 Women Leaders uh, Review. So essentially what it is, is um, if you're familiar with uh, board diversity numbers, Basically, what you do, the typical way that people measure um, representation of women on boards is they say, well, here's a bunch of companies. Um, I can tell what fraction of the board is female. You calculate that for each individual company in your sample, and then you average across the companies. Okay. So what I've plotted here is the fraction of female, the average fraction of female directors. The red line here is for the FTSE 100 in the UK. And the blue line is uh, for the FTSE 350. Okay, so uh, you look at this and you say, well, you know, clearly uh, there's a trend upwards, right? Now, um, if we wanted to eyeball this and say, well, did the UK governance, uh, uh, did the UK policy with respect to gender work, and here I'm um, speaking specifically about the amendments to the governance code, um, did that actually work? Uh, you might say, well, actually, it looks like it did work because uh, remember, if you uh, can remember, I said the governance code was amended in 2010. So this right here is 2010, right? Um, and what we see is that the slope of this line is bigger after 2010 than before. So what does that suggest? It suggests that implementing this policy actually led to more emphasis on gender diversity um, and to, you know, it seems like the policy has actually achieved its goals. Uh, and in fact, um, if you read the Financial Times or The Guardian today, 
Um, the news today was uh, that the UK target for women was actually for women on boards was met three years ahead of schedule. Okay, so it looks like the policy is working, right? Okay, so, but now we can take a closer look and we could say, well, um, you know, if we think about women's participation, which is really what this is about, um, why are we looking at it this way, right? So everyone looks at it at the company level, right? You take the fraction of women on the board and then you average across companies. So why are we looking at it this way? Is this the only way to look at it? And in particular, you may say, well, why are we focusing on companies or firms and not people? And I think this is a valid question to ask because other measures of women's representation or participation look at individuals. In particular, female labor force participation does not double count individuals. But this company level measure of diversity does double count individuals if they sit on multiple boards, right? So if you have one person who's sitting on multiple boards, they're counted as separate people for the purpose of calculating diversity measures. So is there another way of uh, looking at women's representation? And I'm going to propose that there is. In particular, we can ask, instead of saying, what's the average diversity of firms, boards, we can say, what's the average fraction of women serving as directors? So if we say, uh, sorry, not the average fraction of women, what's the average fraction of directors who are female? Right. So what is the representation of women amongst unique individuals serving as directors? So I call that director participation, which is the number of unique female directors in a year divided by the number of unique directors in a year. Right. So here you're not double counting um, people to, if they have multiple board seats. You're only counting each person once. So this question gets to, well, how many women are actually serving as directors versus how many women or what the diversity is at the company level. Okay, so now I'm gonna show you the contrast between average firm representation and the FTSE 100. So this is exactly what I had in the previous slide, right? So this is measured average diversity at the company board level. And here using a bigger sample of data for the UK, I have female participation. Now you see that um, this line is below this line. The slope is definitely smaller. Uh, and you also see that um, you don't observe around the year 2010, you don't observe that there's a slope increase, right? So here that you could say there's a bit of a discontinuity, you know, the slope changes dramatically. Um, this line doesn't show that same pattern. And if you look at the numbers, so here, these numbers say, well, on average, um, you know, 40% of directors, the average board diversity is 40%. This says roughly 20% of directors are female. Now, the first number is a bit more impressive than the second number, right? And then you say, well, you know, that makes you wonder, well, what is it that we're actually trying to achieve? Do we care that every firm has a woman or do we care that more women are participating 
as directors. And the two are not exactly the same. So Joseph asks, could this be interpreted as that the policy affected the board only and not the company as a whole? Um, well, what I'm arguing here is that uh, the policy affects companies, but not necessarily individuals. Um, Keith says, surely double counting of women sitting on multiple, board, multiple boards cannot be the measure. How can that be the meaning of the Davies review and subsequent reviews targets? Um, indeed, that's exactly what I'm saying. So basically, uh, because the the way that board diversity is typical measure, typically measured um, is you measure at the company level, right? So what you do is you say, um, you know, what is the fraction of women on this board? What is a fraction of women on the other board? And let's average across uh, uh, these different companies, right? Now, what you're not doing is saying, well, is the same person sitting on the two boards, right? So you don't account for people sitting across multiple boards. And of course, you know, people may sit on multiple boards. So it's not only women, it's also men. So men may also be double counted or triple counted, depending on how many boards they sit, right? And um, I guess your question, how can that be the meaning of the Davies review and subsequent reviews targets? That's exactly the question that I'm asking, which is, so you may say, well, actually what we really care about is that every company has a diverse board. But you may also say, well, what we really care about is that more women serve as directors. And you see that we've made a lot of progress towards achieving the first goal, but not as much progress towards achieving the second goal. Now we can go further. We can say, well, another thing that is sort of striking is a lot of these reviews, they focus on you know, the largest companies in the UK. Right, so is this a problem? Like how representative are the large listed companies of the overall landscape for women? So here what I've done is I've plotted um, the two lines from before, the FTSE 100 and the FTSE 350. So here I'm not measuring participation, I'm just measuring the same measure um, as in the FTSE Women Leaders, which is average diversity at the company level. But now I'm expanding the set of companies that I'm looking at outside of the FTSE. And so the line that I'm plotting here is for a very large set of listed companies in the UK. And so now here you see, once again, this line is below these two lines. You also look at the year 2010 and you say, well, maybe there's a slight increase in the slope but it's definitely not as striking as the increase in the slope for the FTSE companies. And also, you know, if we look at the um, women leaders numbers, we would say, well, you know, roughly, you know, average board diversity is about 40%, right? So if we extend this line, um, the, the target has been met. The 40% target has basically been met. That was the announcement um, today. Um, so the average, uh, so average board diversity is about 40%, but if we look at the average company in the UK, not just the FTSE, well, average board diversity is half that, it's 20%, right? So what would explain why these numbers are so different? 
Well, here what I've plotted is the number of companies that these um, diversity numbers are calculated over. So obviously for the FTSE 100, you're looking at 100 companies. For the FTSE 350, you're looking at 350 companies. But the number of companies that I'm calculating the diversity numbers over in that gray, for that gray line that I showed you, uh, varies between slightly less than 1,000 to um, over 3,000. Right, so as soon as you expand the sample outside of the top or the largest companies, then you're including many more small companies. And it turns out that women are much more likely to sit on the boards of large companies. So if you only look at large companies, diversity actually looks like amazing, potentially. But if you start looking at the small companies, then diversity doesn't look so amazing. Right, so we go from essentially here, it looks like, while well, diversity in the UK is about 40%, to, well, actually, if we consider, you know, many more small companies, it's half that. Which, of course, raises questions about, well, what is the right objective of the policy? Do we care about diversity at only large companies? Do we also care about diversity at small companies? And is achieving diversity at small com companies, does that require a different policy than achieving diversity at large companies, right? So there's actually many questions that one can ask about, you know, does the policy achieve the goals that it sets for itself? Okay, so what are some key points here? Well, one key point is that board diversity at the company level may not be a reliable measure of how many women are actually serving as directors, right? So that was the point I made about the difference between looking at company level diversity, average diversity versus the representation of women amongst the set of people serving as directors. And a second key point is that large companies may not be representative of the overall situation for women. So now if we say, well, does the UK policy achieve greater representation for women? So, I mean, we saw that there's a trend upwards. So you may say, well, yeah, the policy seems to increase the representation of women on boards. But you could also say, well, actually, the increase may be smaller than people argue because it only achieves it for a limited set of companies, which happen to be very large companies. You may also argue, well, it doesn't actually achieve greater representation necessarily or not as much as one might expect based on the numbers. And so, you know, this raises broader questions about, well, what is actually the goal of the policy? So is this what we really think um, the right policy is? Okay, and I see there's a question from Daniela um, that I'll uh, look at here. So it could be that gender policy require activities to encourage more women at the workplace. Gender... Um, yeah, so um, so actually, that's an interesting question. So 
why is it that women are more likely to be on the boards of large firms? It could be that it's more expensive for small firms, as um, Daniela is suggesting here. Uh, but these, um, it could also be that the way that the policy is designed specifically targets large firms. So I think there's interesting questions about, for example, if you if you only measure what happens at large firms, we know that what gets measured essentially gets done, right? So if you're only keeping track of what happens at large firms, then maybe that's where all the action is. But if nobody cares what's going on at the small firms, then nothing is going to happen. Right. So, so I don't necessarily have all the answers, but I think it's an important question to ask. So what is the objective? Like, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? Um, and are we actually solving it? So, you know, it's interesting, especially if you think about the small firm, big firm discussion. Um, there's a lot of entrepreneurship arguments. You know, a lot of people argue, well, we need more diversity in entrepreneurship because we need diversity of ideas, right? So, but if nobody's paying attention to what's happening at the small firms, maybe this will never happen. And so do we need to have a new policy to think about, well, what, what about the small firms? And what I'm suggesting is maybe we need to think a bit broader. Um, so Lorna says, it suggests the objectives need to be expanded to take into accounting, improving female participation in the wider market, including small companies. Uh, uh, yeah, so I think exactly. So you could say, um, well, uh, do we need to think broader? And I would argue, I think we do need to think broader if we really care that more women participate as directors, right? So, so one question is, why do we care about diversity at the company level? Like, are we trying to fix companies or are we trying to overcome societal barriers? And if you're trying to overcome societal barriers to women, maybe you need to think more about, well, what are the reasons women are not participating as directors? So there's a whole policy space that opens up. Right. And, you know, like I said before, exactly, we can figure out what worked for the large firms. Well, one thing that did seem to work is measurement, right? So I think if you track these things, then people pay attention. So maybe we need to expand our measurement beyond the large firms and also look at the smaller firms, right? Um, so Joseph says, once we achieve gender diversity, what do you think are likely other attributes that we should strive for having a controlled diversity? Um, yeah, this is a good question. And one thing that I talk about in class is, um, which relates to this whole, uh, discussion today is, uh, what are we trying to achieve? Right. So, um, is this about... You know, do we want everyone to have the same ability to have um, access to education, access to work opportunities? Um, is it about essentially a human rights issue? Or do we have specific arguments about, you know, diversity, for example, increases performance? If, if it's the second, then you have to say, well, what is it about diversity, which attributes of diversity would be likely correlated with performance? And I would argue that um, it's very easy to say that some diversity attributes 
should have no effect on performance whatsoever. So I think really what it boils down to is you have to say, what is my goal? What am I trying to achieve? And think carefully about how can I possibly achieve that? Okay, so let me um, go back here and say now, uh, sorry. So I said, well, you know, does a UK policy actually work? So one could say, well, yeah, it works, but not potentially perfectly, right? Um, now, this is only the first question, right? So I said, um, does the policy achieve its stated goal of increasing women's representation? That's a very basic question. But the policy also says, for example, they say, well, we need more women on boards because this is going to lead to enhanced performance, right? So another way of evaluating the policy is to say, well, after the policy was passed, have companies perform better? You know, has there been more innovation since this policy was implemented? Okay, so these are also very important policy evaluation questions, but that's, you know, a topic for another time, or if you take my class, because this gets really into um, much more hardcore sort of statistical analysis, right? So you really need to, to think this through very, very carefully about how you actually try and test whether these goals can be achieved. Um, but I do want to go back uh, to, the, to the general policy movement. So I've, I've talked a bit about the UK case, um, and I just want to say that the UK case is not an outlier. So if you confront gender policies with data and evidence, it is often unclear whether and how the policies achieve the stated goals. And this, in some sense, also makes you wonder whether the policies are formulating the right goals and um, whether we need to think harder about what the underlying problems is that we want the policies to solve. Um, so Muhammad asks, what's differentiating attributes among the women which eventually advance economics being on board? Um, is it loyalty and strong determination compared to male? Mm, I'm not sure I fully understand the, uh, the question, Muhammad, but um, one thing, one of my favorite topics that I just discuss in class is um, the topic of selection which is that gender differences. So a lot of people argue that there's gender differences in um, traits between women and men. A very famous example is risk aversion, right? A lot of people say, well, women are more risk averse than men. Um, I can show you lots of evidence that uh, when it gets to the boardroom, that's no longer the case, right? So, um, you know, the which raises sort of, sort of many interesting issues for discussion um about you know is there actually a biological difference between women and men um is it socialization what are the role of um of, what's the role of selection uh so lots of interesting issues to dig into there um so joseph can you recommend a research that supports the utility claim um so you're saying uh, can i recommend a paper that provides strong evidence that more diversity leads to higher performance? Is that what you're asking? Uh, no, I cannot. I can re I recommend a paper that finds the opposite, 
but I cannot recommend a paper that um, provides robust and solid evidence for the utility claim. That is a very good question. So Joseph asked, so why are we having these policies? And that is exactly, you know, this gets to my point. You have to be a critical reader and consumer of diversity policy and research, right? So if the policies are not based on solid research, then the question is, how can they actually achieve the goals that we want them to achieve, right? So we want equality. We want more rights for women or underrepresented, other underrepresented people, but how sh how do we go about doing it? That's really the question. Um, so Lorna asks, uh, what about the data that demonstrates you need a critical mass of women on a board for it to make a difference? I think it was three women before benefits come through. Does this stand true? Um, so I'm also skeptical of this research. Um, and Shahid asks, could you recommend a paper which provides research on risk aversion no longer being a gap between men versus women at board level? Uh, yeah, so I have uh, one of my own papers um, and it's called um, Beyond the Glass Ceiling, Does Gender Matter? And um, I don't know, can I type this in here or let's see, everyone. Uh, beyond the glass. Uh, so if you look for it, if you Google it, you should be able to find it. Um, let's see, are there more questions? Uh, arguably having high risk tolerance is the price of entry to board level. Exactly my point, right? So if you're the risk averse woman, you'll never make it to the board. So therefore, I mean, it's like almost a no brainer that once you're on the board, the gender difference and risk aversion is not obvious. Okay, so I only have a couple of minutes. Let me just say, you know, basically, hopefully it's clear what we do in the class is, um, we critically confront policies and research with data and um, question the interpretation. And um, we ask, well, can we do better, right? Is, is there a way to, um, to think about these things differently in order to achieve what we think are desirable goals? And um, I should also say, I don't impose desirable goals, right? So um, people may have different goals, but the question is, how do you achieve those goals? And what is it that you want to do in the diversity and inclusion space? And what's the best way of trying to implement it? So those are the things that we think about. So we don't necessarily have all the answers, but we try to um, develop critical thinking about it in order to become better or hopefully better at achieving the goals that we think are worthwhile. So thanks a lot, everyone, for your participation and questions. If there are any more, happy to. Um, so Duncan says, I can't help but feel compelled to lean into social and cultural analysis to give these studies more context. It would be helpful to list some critical assumptions behind the data presented in this discussion. Um, 
uh, yeah, I would say, uh, I guess one thing that I'm arguing, um, as I hope you could see. So basically what I did uh, in this talk is I said, this is how people measure diversity. And then what I did is I questioned the measurement, right? I said, well, but we could also look at it this way by looking at participation, for example. And then I said, but we can also look at it this way by looking at a bigger set of firms. And so basically what I'm arguing is that there are assumptions in this debate that are not explicit, which is exactly, uh, sorry, uh, which is exactly um, what I want you to learn, right? Is to say, well, why are people only thinking about the large firms? It's not obvious, right? Um, and so, so those are some of the things that we talk about. So thanks a lot for thanks a lot for all your thanks. Thank you. <laughs> and, well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. Let's check if there are any further questions. I think people are currently just saying thank you. Well, I also want to say thank you to you, Rene. Uh, it has been very insightful. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, well, and also thank you um, to my team. Thank you for your support and obviously to all of you for joining us today. Um, if, if you allow me just one moment, um, in case you want to find out more about the Oxford Executive MBA program, uh, we would like to invite you to our upcoming Oxford Executive MBA admissions process webinar that will be taking place on Tuesday on the 7th of March at 1.30 p.m. Uh, in this session, my colleague from the admissions team, Alex McNamara and myself will share the different stages of the Oxford Executive MBA admissions process. Well, thanks again, Rene. Thank you for your time. And uh, well, see you all and take care. <laughs>